Okay, so we definitely have been walking in circles still. I'm just going to blame this one on myself. I'm so sorry. I have no idea where I'm going. So you know what? I don't think it's okay. It's and now okay. the fog's rolling in. Dawson, this is a mess. <laughs> we need to get out of the woods of wisdom, go back to the river of curiosity, and find the plains of inquiry. You're right. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. How about you How about you take the lead on all right, this all right. one? All right. I'll turn. I'll, I'll turn. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Do you see that emerging from the fog that is rolling in? I do see it, Liam. What is that? There is a counselor-like presence, I feel. I oh, my goodness. It's city councilor for Ward 9, Giancarlo Carra. Who are you and where the hell am I? I was knocking on doors a minute ago and then everything <laughs> got misty. I, you know, I'm sorry. Some, we control our entrance and exit with a teleportation pad to the pocket dimension, but sometimes the interview dimension can encroach upon our realities, okay. especially in places uh, where the democratic process are so strong. I've slipped through the curtain, but I am the also the candidate for re-election in Ward 9, and I'm interested in who you are and whether you live in Ward 9 and whether I can talk to you about my platform. <laughs> uh, I certainly live near Ward 9, uh, near enough that, uh, that uh, we can talk about it. And our listeners who follow us around like an ethereal presence here in the interview dimension would love to hear uh, about your platform, about your campaign. I am Liam Hunter. I'm the president of the State Student Association, joined by Dawson Thomas, my fellow journeyer adventurer. There's a word. Uh, Vice President uh, Dawson Thomas of the Student Association. Um, glad to see you here. Thanks for taking time out of your, your journeys through the, the pocket dimension here. Am I actually taking time out, or am I going to go back to the exact instant I left? Um, it's undetermined how, how time passes within the... <laughs> well, well, we'll deal we with that know. later. Let's talk about we important may, things. We may can. be on Narnia rules. Okay. Um, <laughs> we're going to start with a little bit of student stuff, moving to city issues, close out with some reconciliation. Um, we know your time is valuable. Let's go right, uh, right into it. Uh, Calgary's had some ups, it's had some downs. Uh, but as economic revitalization is on the front of everyone's minds during this election, students really want to know what role do we have in ensuring that economic revitalization and how can we empower them to participate in it? Well, in my 11 years on council, uh, students have played a massive role in, in shaping the future of our city to the better. And, and if I can be so bold as to suggest that in the 10 years prior to that, when I was a student, I played a pretty major role uh, in terms of engaging with community and doing my research uh, out of the University of Calgary, in the communities of East Calgary, talking about what a better world looked like. So when I knock on doors in East Calgary, uh, you know, I generally I size up who I'm talking to and, you know, what, the, what their values are just from, just from how their door presents itself and, you know, whether there's a defend our parks or public education or public health care signs and stuff like that. But generally, my, my speech goes something along the lines of, I have been working with East Calgary communities for 20 years. And for 10 years, I had a career in sustainable urban design where I had the opportunity to work all over North America, helping cities who had come to the realization that they couldn't keep sprawling outwards forever, and they had to start growing up. And we know that sprawl is terrible on the environment. We know that fiscally, it is a nightmare for cities. It just does not pencil out. It's like a Ponzi scheme of growth. We know that uh, it leads to all kinds of social ills. It, we sprawling cities are polarized by income, by background, there are social isolation issues, car dependency leads to all kinds of public health vectors that are negative. And, you know, you cannot support a diversifying economy 
within a sprawl economy. It is its own economy. And in a place like Calgary, it's dovetailed spectacularly well with our oil and gas economy. But we are obviously at a point in time where our decades-long conversation about the need to diversify Calgary's economy has gotten real. And uh, this is the time to do it. And for the last 20 years, I've been, I've been doing that work. And so I saw what cities across North America were doing. I was right at the forefront of that work. I had the opportunity to plug into an amazing team of high-end consultants who are at the forefront of that work. And in my spare time, I worked with East Calgary communities as an academic researcher out of the University of Calgary, as a community activist at the local level. And the conversation we were having is, what if we lived in a world where instead of taking tax dollars out of the neighborhoods that built our city and through their diversity of people, their diversity of cultures, their diversity of neighborhood and working landscapes, were actively building the city we needed to become. What if instead of sucking taxes out of there and subsidizing sprawl, we were actually historically reinvesting taxes into those communities? What would we spend that money on? What would our values be? How would we nurture uh, the diversity of those neighborhoods, you know, in terms of physical growth, in terms of cultural growth, in terms of economic diversification and all of those things. And I went to City Hall 11 years ago to get many of those plans funded to change the system so that we could actually start investing in that city of diverse, mixed-use, walkable neighborhoods networked with sustainable infrastructure systems. So if I'm up in Greater Forest Lawn, I talk about the rebuild of International Avenue, uh, the the delivery of Max Purple Transit to the avenue and eventually out to Chestermere. I talk about the fact that that Main Street was a 1960s strip with, you know, the occasional sidewalk. And unlike every other Main Street in the city, which is sort of like this boutique environment where people drive in and get out of their cars and are sort of like tourists in their own cities, uh, the Main Street of International Avenue, 17th Avenue Southeast and Greater Forest Lawn, actually had the highest rate of pedestrians coming from the local neighborhoods to buy their daily bread and their, their daily needs from the local merchants. And uh, it was not a safe place to walk. And so we envisioned a world where the city created primary transit, where the city actually created a public realm that not only uh, was safe and usable by all modes of transportation, most especially pedestrians, uh, but it also was beautiful and celebrated local artists and actually put the forest back in Forest Lawn. And, you know, for people in Forest Lawn are super proud of that work, and some of them are aware of how central I was and the team that I led working with their neighborhoods on creating that vision was and, and creating that future for Greater Forest Lawn. But some of them, they're hearing it for the first time. Some of them are new to the neighborhoods, some of them... And so it's, it's a great conversation on the doors, but then the conversation quickly shifts to, you know, we are at the brink of significant reinvestment in these communities. And mm -hmm. uh, every community I talk to, what have we done so far over the last 11 years to redirect tax dollars and to start to build a different neighborhood and a different city? And then what are the things that are lined up? And then the question is, what's gonna happen in this election? Yeah. Because we, we're at a historic turning point. I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Um, I, I know we're we're at a, a major turning point with such high turnover on a on 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 council. All those empty or are going to be changed seats in uh, the council chambers. Um, talking about this reinvestment in communities. Talking about um, growing up, uh, making sure they're walkable, transitable, accessible communities. Um, we've done a lot of work so far. Uh, uh, you know, uh, as a city, 
what needs to happen, what needs to be in local area plans, uh, what's the next steps uh, should you be uh, reelected? Well, I mean, so just to say, I mean, to, to, to talk about some of the advancements we've made, we've, we've revolutionized our transit system. You know, one of the reasons I went to City Hall was because I was so heartsick that the blue line, instead of, uh, you know, turning southward to connect to Mount Royal University, uh, just headed out into the west. And that was like one of the biggest mistakes I, I've ever seen in, in, in city planning. Uh, but, you know, student unions from all of our post-secondaries came to the table when we were talking about building the route ahead and, and transforming our... Uh, our transit system, and most especially, they they defended uh, the the Southwest BRT, which had become sort of this poster child for sort of, uh, I guess, I guess, uh, disaster capitalism style uh, uh, politicking. Uh, also, secondary suites. You know what a no-brainer. Uh, student advocacy over the last 11 years has played a tremendous role in, in making those arguments. And, and what are we talking about with those two very simple but very important moves? We're talking about creating a city where everyone can get around in a dignified way. You don't have to own and operate a car or if you're a household, a fleet of cars to live you know, a first-class citizen lifestyle in, in a city like Calgary. And, and, and it's really about turning the tide in that regard. It's also talking about the fact that we need housing diversity for people of all ages, all stages, all wages, you know, clustered thoughtfully around transit, clustered around active mobility corridors, positioned in places where not only uh, you have to live, but where you want to live and where it makes sense to live, where you're plugged into the cultural life of the city on a neighborhood by neighborhood basis, and you're plugged into, you know, an ability to live, work, play, and learn. And so uh, the, the mission Really, if we talk about diversifying our economy, if we're talking about uh, creating a city where youth are not like, I'm out of here, uh, it's really about creating a city of vibrant, mixed-use, you know, culturally alive, diversified economy, neighborhoods, networked by sustainable infrastructure systems. And uh, that, that has been the mission for 11 years. We are pointed very much in that direction, but you know, we've had a downturn. Sure. And we've had COVID-19, which is, you know, a massive blow to, I think, the entire psyche of Western democracy. And we are in the grips of a politics of anger, fear, and division. And so this election is really a referendum on who we want to be as a city, how we want to plug into Western culture, what Western culture is about as we challenge some of the, you know, big inequities that we are daylighting and, and owning for the first time in a realistic way. Uh, and so this is this is a very fraught time. And as you say, it's a fraught, critical turning point in our history where we could, you know, continue to head in that more sustainable direction that so many of us have spent the last 11 years really shifting towards. Or we could go in a number of different ways because we have a massive turnover in our leadership. And that massive turnover in our leadership represents an opportunity uh, for people. For, for individuals and, and forces that are interested in maybe not heading in that glorious direction towards a more sustainable world and taking us in other directions. And so this is, this is the all the marbles election, and it's certainly the biggest reason why I stepped up to seek re-election after, after 11 years and three terms of service. Certainly. Uh, so you mentioned uh, just briefly, you know, students maybe uh, getting uh, dissuaded, 
deciding to leave. So it, it sounds like, do you, I've, I've talked to sitting councilors over the last year and a half, two years. Some have told me this is the biggest issue facing the city, um, which I think might've been because they were talking to a student. Uh, others have said, it's a myth. It sounds like you think the brain drain's happening. Well, I mean, I think, you know what? I, 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 I believe both, right? I think that you do want your youth to leave and learn about the outside world, but you want them to come back, right? And then I think about like who I am. My mom was born in the back of a shop in Inglewood in 1940, graduated from Western Canada High School in 58, and her dream was to go to university. And that was not even in the cards for a poor East Calgary girl in this city at this time. And so she moved to New York City to seek her fortune and get educated on the dime of the New York City government who were sending their workforce to free night school at the city colleges. I did the reverse of what my mom did. I came back here after graduating high school in New York City to go to the University of Calgary because, you know, the University of Calgary was a school that I could afford to go to. It was an awesome school, and this was an awesome place to live. I'd spent my summers hiking and camping in the Canadian Rockies, and I wanted to learn to ski. And so I felt like I was coming to the country, and then I found myself, you know, the countryside. Like, I felt I was going to live this, like, rural <laughs> existence as, a, as a post second. Yeah. <laughs> and I find myself in class with, you know, students from small-town Alberta and Manitoba and Saskatchewan who are coming to the big city. And I realized, you know, both viewpoints are valid. And so, you know, I, I do think that we are a city at a critical mass. We are a you know, an engine of the, of the, of the province and the, and the uh, nation's economy and culture. We house a huge proportion of the population, and that's what cities are all about, that sort of everyone getting together and bouncing together. And what we really need to do is we need to, you know, supercharge that reaction that's taking place and make it a compelling place for people from abroad to come to and for people who have grown up here and want to see other things to learn about the, how the rest of the world works and then to come back with that knowledge. And so I do think that the politics of anger, fear, and division that we're in the grips of right now uh, is really designed to do two things. It's designed to make uh, a certain portion of the population hypermobilized on anger, and it's designed to drive every normal person away from the process. So that without a majority of the population, you can control and maintain power. And we saw Trump do that so successfully in the States. We saw the befuddlement of the British you know, population through the whole Brexit debate. And that sort of disaster approach is, is, is what it's designed for. So you know, I think it's easy to say that the brain drain's there, but I think you're just basically playing into the exact narrative of your mortal enemies when you do that. And I think this is a fabulous place to live in an increasingly tumultuous world. I think mm -hmm. it's got great opportunity, but it also has challenges and we need to address those. And maybe this is a great opportunity to pivot towards some of those challenges and some of the things that we need to commit to if we're not going to sort of fade into the dustbin of history and actually rise on our strengths. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and speaking of pivoting, uh, let's, let's do that. Uh, we have a, a very specific question about, about living in our city. Um, for students. Yes, absolutely. Um, so my question is, how will you ensure that we are keeping housing affordable for students since it's already so expensive for all of us here? Well, I mean, housing in Calgary is still cheap by national standards in terms of a big city, but that's nothing to rest our laurels on. And, you know, I've actually been laser focused on the issue of affordability 
for my entire career. I actually went back to school in 2005 to start a PhD in urban geography, looking specifically at affordability, because I'd spent time in private practice designing these beautiful mixed-use neighborhoods that would be engines of creativity. Uh, but those neighborhoods only work if they are diverse ecosystems of people. And the problem is that if you build a beautiful neighborhood that's mixed-use, walkable, everyone wants to live there. And uh, that's the, that's, you know, I'll back up a little bit and just say like 85% of everything human beings have built on the face of the North American continent has been built since the end of the Second World War. And that unprecedented scale of development has, or scope of development, I should say, has been matched by an unprecedented scale for the first time in human history. Instead of designing our habitat around the walkable needs of the human body, uh, you know, the 15-minute city as we're talking about it now, the, the, the great neighborhood, uh, we started to build around the needs of the automobile. And we built automobile habitat. And you know what? The suburbs were fetishized by Leave it to Beaver and the Brady Bunch and all of that. And now we're, we're recognizing that we all want to live cool, inner-city, mixed-use, walkable urban lifestyles. And even if all of us don't, it's only 15% of what's out there on the market. So it's a, just a simple question of supply and demand. And uh, there's more people who want to live the urban lifestyle than there are urban, than there are spots in urban places for people to live that lifestyle. And that's where gentrification and the affordability crunch really comes in. You can live way out in the burbs. You can't move around out there as, as affordably because it's hard to live from a transit perspective. So the solution is really to build the transit-oriented city to make sure that every transit node is a dense, robust, mini downtown that has a maximum amount of supply. And then on terms, in terms of, and then, and then to just have that happen throughout the city. Um, in terms of the actual supply, you need to supply as much, uh, as much housing in as much variety as you possibly can. And oftentimes the market is held back by regulatory forces you know, by municipal governments that are designed to, you know, it's, I, I think there was like a suburban Stockholm syndrome thing that took place. Like everyone moved out to the burbs and the people who were stuck behind sort of fetishized that sort of crystalline, low density environment that never changed. And a lot of the regulations that we piled on over the last several decades were attempts to create suburban conditions within the inner city rather than that vibrant change environment. So we have to dismantle the regulations that prevent the supply of market housing. And then we also have to come to the table with an every type of non-market housing that we can. And so the answer to solving and staying ahead of the affordability crunch as you build better and better places is to, is to create the opportunity for more and more people across the spectrum to plug in and participate in the life of those communities that you're building. And so I'm, you know, this, this election for me in Ward 9 is very much a referendum on whether the majority of people in Ward 9 support the idea of building more inclusive neighborhoods that allow more people to be your neighbors or people who, you know, are worried about mm -hmm. neighborhood change and, and what that might imply. And, and some of that worry is just, I think, just fear of change and some of it is more problematically fear of others. Yeah. I think we um, just t keeping on the idea of regulations of, of the inner city's development, um, 
especially along kind of major transit thoroughfares, places where students are living. Um, this can make this ties a little bit in, in places like University Heights, which ties in a little bit with secondary suites, lots of students trying to live in what I called D block when I was in at U of C. I just considered University Heights a part of the university campus. Um, I, I might be using the wrong term, but guaranteed covenant land, is that what it is? Where you can't develop anything. I think places like Briar Hill as well. Yeah, so, so I mean, the, the, now we're going to get real nerdy in terms of, like, municipal regulations. But before municipal governments had the legal right to zone land, so, you know, it, the, the, the single biggest power your municipal government has, it's to tell someone what they can and can't do on that person's private property. And that law, that legal framework exists, and it sort of grew up you know, in the United States at the end of the 1920s into the 1930s, and then it just blanketed the entire world and actually presaged the ability to build suburbia. Uh, and, but that's a whole other story. Uh, the ability of municipal governments to tell people what they can and can't do has existed since around the 1930s as part of the legal framework of the landscape of North America and the core power base of municipal governments. Uh, before that, uh, there were earlier types of regulation, and uh, the restrictive covenant that you're referring to is how... Uh, de facto zoning took place in a legal framework outside of the of the reach of municipal governments. And so what happened when zoning when when zoning came in is that I think the assumption was that these legal covenants were just basically uh, dated things that no longer existed or were no longer relevant. And for the most part, they have played, they have faded into the dustbin of history. In some neighborhoods that are fighting change and are fighting becoming, you know, the D block that they should be adjacent to things like the University of Calgary, they've discovered these ancient artifacts and they're sort of viewed as like these these relics from the from from the from the heritage gods to help them fight the forces of change, you know. And you know, we had the same thing happen like in the community of Inglewood, we discovered that the airport vicinity protection area, a provincial law, which basically didn't allow you to develop Inglewood, existed. And the people who don't want Inglewood to change sort of viewed this as like this, this gift from the heritage gods that they could sort of lean on. Same thing with these restrictive covenants. There are communities that are like, holy smokes, we've got this whole legal framework that has nothing to do with the city and has nothing to do with the conversations that the city has about zoning, you know, zoning is set up to build a better world. And whether you do a good job with it or not, that's the basis. These things are designed to make sure nothing changes. And they are being used by some communities as the legal tools that they are. And they exist in the court system apart from municipal government. And so municipal government can say what it says and does what it does. But, you know, the people who want to fight change have this whole other tool that they can work on. And some of the people who are um, running in this election are running under the belief that uh, the city should abandon its, you know, the preeminence of zoning and its power and its ability to exercise a conversation and enforce a conversation about what a better world would look like and just respect these other legal covenants. And some of us believe instead we should find ways for them to uh, actively fade into the dustbin of history as opposed to passively fade as they have been doing until the, until recently
wonderful. Thanks for that answer. Um, we are going to shift now into broader city issues, kind of more standard fare. Uh, though I loved the conversation. I think I could talk about uh, niche zoning That's issues. because you're a nerd, man. Forever, yeah. because you're a nerd. <laughs> uh, big time. <laughs> Um, we're going to ask some pretty standard questions, questions you've definitely gotten before. Um, I'm going to hand all three of these to Dawson, um, for kind of broader city issues. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So first question, what is your stance on the green line? My stance is that the green line is the backbone of Calgary's best future. And it's been, um, something that I've been fighting for. It's, you know, if you look at what we did on International Avenue, establishing the MAC system really came out of student-based advocacy coming out of the University of Calgary and working with local neighborhoods. At the same time that the, Ingl- uh, the International Avenue Design Initiative was making that argument for primary transit in those communities, uh, the Inglewood Design Initiative, uh, where I was the president of the community association, was making the argument that we had to completely rewrite the relationship between the community of Inglewood and the rest of the city. And if you actually look at neighborhood protest movements, and some of them are, you know, I think distasteful sort of arguments that we should, you know, codify in municipal law restrictive covenants so neighborhoods can't change and other people can't live amongst us. Other arguments were better. Other neighborhood protest arguments were better. And, you know, the community of Inglewood was slated for demolition in the 1960 plan freeways, culvertization of the river, heavy industry, we're going to wipe that neighborhood out of existence. That neighborhood that in 2014 was declared the best neighborhood in Canada and is celebrated for its heritage character and its, you know, its role as an economic engine and a cultural engine that, that birthed the city of Calgary. 1960, Inglewood was going to be wiped off the face of the planet and the neighborhood rose up and fought against that and and had enough political capacity and capital to successfully take that fight. And we had our own Jane Jacobs and a guy named Jack Long who, who, you know, led the fight and said, every man is a planner. We would now say every person is a planner, but the idea that people should be deeply involved in conversations regarding the future of their communities. Um, The first thing that neighborhood protest movements do is that they define who they are, what their community is. The evolution, when they level up, is they start talking about what they want their relationship to be with the rest of the city. And so through the Inglewood Design Initiative, we made very strong arguments about who we were, where we came from, where we were at, and where we wanted to go. And where we wanted to go was we wanted to forge much better relationships with the rest of the city. And now whether it was to maintain and enhance the ecological relationship of the rivers, you know, Mokinstis right there, and as it flows out into the wilderness and comes through our our community, Uh, whether it was active mode connectivity through pedestrian bridges and enhancements of the bridges and stuff like that that we've, you know, delivered over the last 11 years, or whether it was, you know, not, I mean, the freeways that were going to wipe out Inglewood were designed because we were envisioning a downtown much like the one we've built, you know, minus the downturn in oil and gas and, and the vacancies. But the expectation that was that everyone would be getting into and out of that downtown in a single occupancy vehicle. There was, in fact, actually plans to build a freeway called the Eastern Penetrator that would inseminate the downtown with cars on a daily basis, uh, you know, and then, and then drain them. And that was... 
if you think about it, fundamentally just a bad relationship between the downtown and the rest of the city and its surrounding neighborhoods. And, and you know, unlike most places in North America, actually you can do a Google search, a Google map search, and look at any city of a million people in North America. And what you're going to see is you're going to see clover leaves right next to the c- central business district. Mm-hmm. And those clover leaves sit on what used to be neighborhoods like Inglewood. And so most of those amazing, you know, downtown adjacent, mixed use, mixed income neighborhoods that were engines of culture and, and commerce and, and economic uh, were wiped out. And so we said we need to commit to a transit future, a transit-oriented development future for our city. And I was sent to City Hall by these East Calgary neighborhoods to really make that happen. And the Green Line is, as I said, the backbone of that, of that system. And uh, I'm fiercely proud that we've been able to bootstrap the largest infrastructure project in the history of the city into existence. It's now locked. It's happening. Uh, I'm super proud that we developed that unbelievably complex program through an unprecedented consultation with citizens and students and every stakeholder. And every step of the way, does the Green Line look like what I thought it was going to look like when we started talking about it and started seeking funding for it, you know, nine years ago? No, but it looks like what it needs to look like because we've done the work. And so I am massively proud. I'm super excited. There's still a lot of work to do. And that's another reason why I'm running for reelection is because how the public realm lands around every station, how the city shaping elements of how you get to and from the, sa- from the station areas, w- what the parks and plazas look like and what the real estate opportunities are and who they house and what other businesses do they sort of, uh, are all things that need to be developed now that we're over the hump of whether this thing is going to happen or not. So yeah, I'm I, I will concede that uh, my colleague Shane Keating is the papa of the Green Line, but I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the tag that I'm its cool uncle. <laughs> <laughs> we all love a cool uncle. <laughs> um, so, um, following up to the question of the Green Line and transportation, um, transportation for indi- individuals with disabilities, it's a pretty bi- a major challenge. Challenges right, challenge right now because individuals. Um, it doesn't allow them to fully participate um, in all aspects of community life. Um, what actions will you be taking to improve the availability of accessible public um, transit? Well, I mean, we have Access Calgary. We have significantly improved um, the ability of Access Calgary to respond to the needs of people who need that service. Uh, and we need to fund that more. But what we also have to do is we have to understand that there's sort of a a, a reckoning to be had. And, uh, you know, the idea that you can provide an urban level of service to every far-flung suburban corner of our city um, is a very difficult proposition. It, 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 It buckles under the weight of reality. And so I think our longer-term play is to actually build that city of mixed-use urban neighborhoods networked with accessible and, and uh, you know, high-quality infrastructure and transportation systems so that everyone can live a great Canadian, Calgarian, urban life, uh, but that we're not there yet either. And so we're going to have this awkward time in between. My platform calls for five generational investments. 
in the city. And so, you know, my platform really is there's, there's sort of like, there's so much to my platform, but I sort of envision it as, as three major areas. The first one is the Great Neighborhoods Mission that I've been on for 11 years, which is the nuts and bolts, best practices of how we restructure the city to be an organism that delivers great neighborhoods and networks them with, with sustainable infrastructure systems. It's a five-point transformation. It's well underway, uh, and I'm very proud of that. I'm running under, for the first time in 11 years, I'm not running under the banner of great neighborhoods. Great neighborhoods make a great city. I'm running under the banner of Rise Together. And Rise Together is really driven by three value statements. Number one, we have to choose to, given that we have to choose to rise, we have to make sure that it is with and for everyone. And so anti-racism, equity is a core value. Climate action is a core explicit value. And democracy and dialogue, the understanding that we're not going to become the city we need to become unless we have a government that is working well and for us and with us, and we have to stop basically electing people who don't believe in government to govern us, are the three value statements. But then there's five budget items, because I believe that a city's values are not so much seen in their policy statements as they're seen in their budget. And after seven years of grinding what was a fairly lean and efficient municipal government benchmarked against cities across North America, through the downturn, we have become leaner and meaner and you know more, more tightly wound in terms of how efficient we are. Uh, and we've done that largely protecting frontline services. And we've We've taken those savings and we've started to invest in the city we need to become. But if you have an incoming council that thinks that they are going to find more savings and use those savings to deliver, you know, the city we need to become, uh, they're dreaming. We have cut to the bone. Now it's time to start building up muscle. And I'm calling for five dedicated funds that will appear as line items on our tax bill so that every time a tax bill is paid to the city of Calgary. You get your services that you pay for, but you're also contributing cents on the dollar to five areas, downtown revitalization, transit-oriented development in Main Street so we can create that polycentric city. But then specifically to your question, uh, the idea that we need an accessibility, a livable streets, and a 5A network fund. You know, we have to make sure that everything from snow and ice control for people who, you know, are basically their journey through their neighborhood ends at the end of the block because the, uh, because the intersection is an ice choked morass that no one can get through. We're going to have to start spending a little bit more on snow and ice control. I think, you know, we've gotten away with being a Chinook culture that drives everywhere and more and more people are walking around and more and the Chinooks aren't as regular as they used to be due to climate change. Uh, we're going to have to start upping our snow and ice control budget for accessibility reasons. We're going to have to start investing in actual things. I believe we need to have a public washroom um, program. I was just meeting with old folks, and the idea that there are places where they can charge their scooters so that their point of no return, you know, when they leave, when they, when they leave home is extended significantly, and they have a tremendous amount of autonomy and dignity and sort of ranging around the city, you know, all of these things take money, 
And if we think that we're going to cut our way into a city that takes care of everyone, it's not going to happen. So we need that fund. I'm also calling for a parks, recreation, and culture fund. Um, we have an amazing world-class park system, and our operating budget to keep it alive is literally life support. Like it's an on, it's on an induced coma, <laughs> you know. And we need to we need to up that and build more, especially to celebrate. If COVID's taught us anything, we need to get outside. And then finally, and I think this is a good segue into probably the next question you're going to ask me, we need the community safety investment framework funded significantly. And that's the fund where we start to dismantle systemic racism in our policing, in our emergency response, in our dealing with people who have mental health and addictions issues and with, with people who are unhoused and, uh, Let's get into that. Yeah, that's uh, that wasn't our next question, but I'll certainly be moving it up here. Uh, let's let's dig a little deeper into that. How how do you see um, the future of kind of criminal justice reform in Calgary? How we help our most vulnerable populations? Um, we'll touch upon this a little more specifically. Uh, to um, when we talk about reconciliation, we're going to talk a little more specifically about our indigenous populations, um, but more broadly now. Uh, how do you see that that fund being reworked, or 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 these um, these budget items kind of being reassessed? What 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 do you see in the future? Oh, I've got a lot to say on this. I, I mean, I'll just start with my own personal journey, right? So I came to uh, municipal government from a professional city building perspective, and if you think think about cities as a sort of collision and a dialogue between people and place, and I was definitely the expert on the place side of that equation. The last six years, I have um, been the chair of Community and Protective Services, which is the frontline city-serving batch of services, uh, and, and I've gotten much more involved in the people side of things. And my own journey in terms of you know going from understanding as an educated person what systemic racism means to understanding what it means for my neighbors who don't look like me and our need to sort of significantly address that if we're going to deliver on the promise of Canadian pluralism and rise together. You know, it started with um, the supercharging of our Calgary Urban Aboriginal Action Committee, which was this, you know, moribund committee that we'd always staff with people, you know, citizens would step up and say, I want to be on that and be like, okay, I don't know what you guys talk about, but, you know, thanks for doing the work. And all of a sudden the calls for the, the, the TRC came out, right? The Truth and Reconciliation Commission delivered its 94 calls to action. And that invigorated our CAWAC committee like you wouldn't believe. Like all of a sudden the question was, there's 94 things that Canadians need to do to address the genocide in our past, to acknowledge the genocide in our past, and to start redressing these historical wrongs. And of those 94 calls to action, CAWAC produced a report called White Goose Flying, which is really the city, a any municipal government, but specifically our municipal government's responsibility to address that. And uh, that was a game changer for me. And then, you know, things like um, banning conversion therapy and the lead up to that. Um, I did work with, you know, an amazing team of people uh, in the not-for-profit sector and in my office on gender equity and diversity, which is, you know, the, and we established the Social Well-Being Advisory Committee that brought, you know, all of our, 
all of our groups like CAWAC and our, and our seniors friendly and our youth advisory committees and our mental health people and our into a, into a, a room where they could talk together and hopefully start telling city council, nah, but you can't do that. <laughs> you got to do this instead. Right. And so all of these things were emerging and, you know, the, the ban of conversion therapy was significant, not just because of banning conversion therapy, but because we undertook in the age of COVID-19, a three-day public hearing into whether we should do it or not. And we had no idea whether we could have meaningful engagement on any kind of question, especially a question that weighty. And what we learned was that actually a virtual format for meetings was a better way to go because people did not have to leave wherever they were and take time out of their lives to wait online and then stand up in the intimidating environment of, of council chambers and, you know, try to speak truth to power uh, in a very intimidating way. They could sit in the comfort of their own place and speak their truth, you know, uh, into a microphone uh, without all kinds of baggage. And, and, and that taught us that we could tackle some very weighty things. And what came right after that, of course, was the murder of George Floyd and the explosion of Black Lives Matter across the globe. And Calgarians stepped up in those protests and in that outrage against systems of oppression. And Black Lives Matter in the streets of Calgary very clearly said, we need to have a conversation inside the halls of our government, if it is in fact our government. And as chair of Community and Protective Services, you know, that's, that was my spot, and we, we were able to change how the committee works. We were able to make space for BIPOC voices. I ceded the chair uh, to Dr. Melinda Smith, the, the incoming or the inaugural vice provo of, of EDI at the University of Calgary, and we undertook a three-day inquiry into systemic racism in the city of Calgary. And what was very clear was that it doesn't matter what the background of the individual who testified, and we, we heard from over three days, I think 180 members of our community, and keep in mind Calgary is the third most diverse city in, in, in Canada, 37% of our, of our population is not white, it's BIPOC, and we heard from that community and in all their diversity. And it doesn't matter what their background was, it doesn't matter what their age was, what their income was, what their education level was, how new they were to Calgary. It was unbelievably clear that our, our BIPOC neighbors do not experience the same relationship with our core institutions that people who look like me get to. And you know that is wrong. And we acknowledged that it was wrong. We acknowledged systemic racism. And we committed in this moment in history where hopefully things are fluid to make significant change. I was placed on Calgary Police Commission by, by my colleagues, with my colleague George Chahal. And uh, our job was to hold the police, who also acknowledged systemic racism and a commitment to change to account. And uh, I think the police chief said it best. We had that inquiry into systemic racism in July, and in September, he, uh, he approached city council with his plan. And the way he laid it out, I agree with. He said, 
we have a tremendous number of resources already funded and doing their work in community, but we don't coordinate them well enough. And so we need to coordinate existing resources. Number two, our police service responds to a huge number of uh, calls for service that are not criminal matters and that they do not have the expertise to address. And it is a tremendous waste of police resources and it is fundamentally unfair to members of the police service who are you know, f addressing calls for service that they have no capacity to address and inadvertently are criminalizing matters that are not criminal matters. And not only is it not fair to our police service, it's certainly not fair to members of our community who need help and who need service and are getting bad service and getting the wrong service. And so we need to figure out what the police are responding to, how much of those resources are being spent to send uniformed police officers to address non-criminal matters. And we have to readjust that. We have to reallocate very clearly. And then the final thing is we need to figure out what other resources are missing from the equation. And so the mission is really to invest significantly in prevention, to uh, invest heavily in harm reduction when we haven't <laughs> prevented things that we need to make sure don't happen in the future. We need to make sure that we have a 24-7, 365 emergency response so that if there's a mental health crisis at 3 in the morning, we're sending experts in mental health crises, uh, not uniformed officers whose job it is to go after criminals. Uh, and then what we need to do on the back end is make sure that our um, support systems are, you know, our strong communities, our housing spectrum is there to make sure that, that you know, we both prevent and catch people and, and, and support them after the fact. And that is the single biggest thing that we need to address. And the Community Safety Investment Framework Fund is the clearinghouse for paying for that. And it's the framework environment where we build that new system. And one of the core reasons why I'm running for re-election is to make sure we land that well. And, you know, if you want to be a little bit competitive, there's going to be a race amongst mm -hmm. municipalities across North America to see whether and how well they can deliver that call for a better world. And uh, I think that it is 100% within the wheelhouse of ourselves as Calgarians and as Canadians to deliver it extremely well here. Having said that, it's contested. And depending on who we elect, those that, that beautiful world that we are steering towards and that we are you know, moving towards could never come. Could if, be very different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, certainly one of the, the biggest issues that I hear from my peers is whether or not we're going to start treating mental health and addictions like public health issues as opposed to criminal ones. Um, so I'm very proud of everything that the city of Calgary has done over the last 10 years. We have a three-legged stool of housing, poverty reduction, and mental health and addictions, and now we need to fund it. We need to stop talking. We need to, we need to live our values not in our policy, but in our budget. And that's what the Community Safety Investment Framework Fund is all about. Phenomenal. Um, one last kind of uh, uh, city issue. It's certainly one that is being talked about quite a bit. Um, it's one that I, I'm, I know you have spoken on uh, quite a lot. So I won't, we won't discuss this for too long. 
but knowing um, you know your expertise within uh, building communities, the guidebook. Brief statement on that. Well, I mean, if 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 Shane Keating is the papa of the Green Line and I'm its cool uncle, I, I'm I'll take the call as being the papa of the guidebook for great communities for everyone, uh, which unfortunately was too controversial a title. So we had to call it the guidebook for great communities. Unfortunately, that was also too controversial a title. So we had to call it the guide for local area planning. But if you look at the design initiative work that I did when I was a student and that I did out of the University of Calgary with East Calgary communities, the call was very, was very clear. We needed to create a planning system that instead of putting cul-de-sacs on farmer's field on the edge of the city, actually was designed around growing communities, existing communities up. That was step number one. And that's what the Guide for Great Communities for Everyone, or the Guide for Local Area Planning, as we now call it, does. It actually is this linchpin of a transformed planning system. It operationalizes our municipal development plan, which is you know over 11 years old now and was passed as a piece of policy, but without the budget and the operating framework to make it actually happen. And that's why I became a municipal politician to make that happen. It uh, operationalizes it through a series of local area plans. Like I strongly believe in what Jack Long and Jane Jacobs and everyone taught us that every person is a planner and the future of our communities needs to be something that we're deeply involved and invested in. And we have to have great conversations and then we have to put great plans in place. Where have we come from? Where are we at? Where do we want to go? And the, and the job of a city is to engage its communities in those conversations and, and, ch and choose great plans that make dollars and cents, that make social sense, that make environmental sense. And the local area planning exercises that are going to roll out throughout the entire city are going to make that happen. Two other even more policy wonky things is uh, the local area planning uh, processes also indicate where we spend our tax dollars. Now that we're not subsidizing sprawl, we're actually investing them in the existing community. So green line, parks, active mode mobilities, uh, recreation centers, all of these things, where, how many, where do they go, how do we make them work, all of these things are answered and the funding starts flowing uh, through the local area planning exercise. And then just the final thing, to get extremely sort of uh, planning nerdish, because I know you love that, um, there are two solitudes in our planning system. There is policy, which is what we say we want our city to become, and then there's land use, which is the actual power of a municipal government to tell privately owned land what it can and can't do on that privately owned land. Those two things don't touch each other. In fact, our current land use bylaw, 1P2007, was developed in 2000, was, was passed into law in 2007 as this backwards looking risk management exercise done by one branch of our municipal planning department to lock in what was on the ground today in a risk management exercise. Two years later, a different branch of our municipal planning government, you know, our government planners, passed our municipal development plan, which said, you know, we've got to become a city that grows up rather than sprawls out. And so we have a land use bylaw, which is our power, and a municipal development plan, which is our aspirations, looking in two different directions. And so for years, those things never touch. Now they're working against each other. And what the Guide for Local Area Planning does is it creates the chassis 
of a new land use bylaw that for the first time ever takes our aspirations for what we want our city to be and the legal right of our city to affect those things and it interweaves them. It hasn't inter interwoven them yet. We have to develop that land use bylaw, but if you look at the urban form categories that are the toolbox for building a great neighborhood, the tools, the actual you know, Lego bricks of what a great neighborhood looks like, um, the land use bylaw will be that if we're successful in continuing to move the mm -hmm. ship in this more sustainable direction. I feel like I didn't answer one component of your question because I got very deep into into the weeds <laughs> of of uh, of this, but I, I will say that the the guide for local area planning, local area planning, all of that is something that any community that understands that change is inevitable has to, in good faith, uh, engage in. Okay. Thank you. Um, with that, I think we're coming up on time. I think we may have come up on time a while ago, but yeah. thank you so much for talking to well, us. I blew over time talking about city issues. That's a, that's a big <laughs> surprise. I'm holding you guys to your promise to me that we're on Narnia time, and I'm going to go right back to the doors and not have lost any time. Oh, you'll be right there. Unfortunately, <laughs> you do age in the interview dimension, so you'll be an hour and a half old or an hour. I don't know what time. Maybe 50 minutes. It's like um, I've eaten two hot dogs and knocked off those years of my life, eh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us here in the interview dimension. We will allow you to fade back into the mist, but before we do, do you have any closing statements? Well, I mean, I just, I, I think that the current, I, I always say I was elected in an age of politics in full sentences, and now we're all enduring the age of the politics of anger, fear, and division. And I cannot stress enough the idea that if you're turned off by politics, that's by design. You have been deliberately socially engineered to want to go home and watch Netflix and chill and hug your family and stay away from this ugliness. It's ugly by design. And unless we reject that and take charge of the city we want to be, of the province we want to be, of the country we want to be, of the world we want to live in, uh, the bad guys are going to win. And they're, they're doing a great job of gaming the system. So get out and vote. That's a message we can all agree with. Everybody, remember to vote. It's going to be October 18th if you don't vote in advanced polling. October 6th and 7th, advanced polling is here on campus, in Campus Center, where we are recording this right now. Uh, we joke around, but we are not in the interview dimension. Advanced polling is in this physical building here on this plane of reality. Come in, get your vote in. Wards 1 through 7, October 6th, 8 through 14, October uh, 7th. Thank you so much, Counselor, for joining us. Well, thank you for what you guys do. I mean, I think about when I was a student in, in undergrad. I mean, I think I was not plugged in the way you guys are plugged in, and I celebrate your uh, your leadership. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for uh, thanks for coming in today. Uh, uh, we'll allow you to fade back into the mist, Dawson. Let's continue our journey in the interview dimension. See if we can find a couple more candidates before we uh, get back on the teleporter pad. Yes, absolutely, and enjoy yourself. Bye. Good luck out there. Bye. <laughs>